0: Scripture lesson for this morning is from the second chapter of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis 2, verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden and told him to till it and to keep it. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. And whatever the man called them, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not yet found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and the man slept, and then God took one of the man's ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one should be called woman. This one was taken from man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves unto his wife, and the two become as one flesh. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The textbook... Harry Potter consults to learn his zoology at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry was written by Dr. Newt Scamander, a magizoologist, and it is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Now that sounded like a sermon series to me, so here we are. Now, the Bible is an ancient book, of course. The newest materials in the Bible come to us from about 100 A.D., and the oldest are about 3,000 years old, from the time of King David, 1,000 B.C. Agrarian folk, the Bible's authors, lived much closer to the earth than we do. They were shepherds and farmers and cattle ranchers, and they kept intimate consort with the beasts who provided their living And their calories. And so you know that from the time of King David to the time of King Jesus, the commonest Palestinian home was a simple rectangular two-storied structure made of field stones and bricks and plastered over with dried mud. The family would congregate and eat and sleep on the second floor. Guess who lived on the first floor? Sheep and oxen and goats. And so Mother Mary might not have been as shocked as we are when it turned out that she had to deliver her baby in a stable with only sheep and oxen as midwives. That actually was a very common experience for ancient Palestinian folk. And this makes them, of course, very different from you and me. We never witness the obscure and sometimes unpleasant journey of our calories from orchard and henhouse to dinner plate. And unless we're on a safari or at a national park or in a zoo, we never see anything more exotic than a rabbit or a squirrel or a deer or a songbird. Once in a while, a fox, a coyote, if we're lucky, too frequently for my dog Dudley, a skunk three times in seven years. And so the Bible is an ancient book written by shepherds and subsistence farmers, so it shouldn't surprise us that animals appear in all of our favorite Bible stories, including even the birth of Jesus. When my kids were in single digits, I used to read to them at bedtime from a book called Animal Stories in the Bible. There were 50 chapters. My own estimate is that there are about 100 animals named in the Bible. Joe and I this summer will have a time for only nine of them. And this text from Genesis 2, for example. Now you know, if you've been listening to me for the last three years, that there are two discrete creation stories in the Bible. The first one, the one I didn't read, in this one God acts like a confident type A left-brained engineer with PhDs in cosmology, geology, meteorology, biology, zoology, and anthropology. Creation snaps into place just like clockwork in six carefully delineated steps like the precise gears of a Swiss watch so that by the seventh day God can take a day off. Day one, light. Day two, the sky. Day three, the plants. Day four, sun and moon. Day five, fish and birds. Day six, the land animals and humanity. God has a blueprint like Louis Sullivan or Daniel Burnham. God has a business plan like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. God's cosmic symphony is mathematically precise. There is not a note out of place. It's a masterpiece. It's perfect. And God knows it. God boasts. Ain't I fine, says God. He says it six times. It's very, very good. Especially the last piece of this intricate puzzle. The king and queen of creation. Man and woman. A finite replica of God's infinite beauty. Bearing the very visage of God, God's self. And in the first creation account, you see God remembers that if you're going to create a being that sexually reproduces, you're going to need two genders. This little detail seems to have escaped God in the second creation story. It's a very different story from the first. This one comes second in your Bibles, but comes first in your history. This is the most aboriginal, primitive material in the Hebrew Bible. This comes from about 1000 BC, probably the reign of King David. In the second creation story, God is not an engineer or an architect. God is the great improviser. Duke Ellington or Jackson Pollock, God experiments. God starts with the man, just the man, mind you, not the woman yet. And there stands this lonely guy. His name is Adama, which means groundling or earthling or dusty thing. And God says to God's self, oh, shoot, I forgot to give him a place to live and food to eat. Sorry, let me try again. And then God goes back to the drawing board and plants this lush garden with every tree that is pleasant to look at and that's good for food to eat. But it's still not right. The man's still not lonely. In this story, different from the first creation story where creation hums and steps with that perfect choreography of those robots in a Ford Motor Company assembly line, you know, And God says six times, it's very good. In this creation account, God says more than once, it's not good. God doesn't boast. God apologizes. I haven't gotten it right yet, says God. Let's start again. And so God goes back to the drawing board, back to this almost blank canvas, and starts throwing forms and colors and shapes against the canvas To change the metaphor, God takes creation's most fundamental molecular constituents, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, and bends them into loops and hooks the loops into chains and then twists the chain into a double helix of prolific possibility. That must have shocked even God. God, say. It's miraculous. With these four building blocks in four billion years, you get the caribou's towering rack and the tiger's sleek pelt and the manta ray's undulating wingspan, and I'll bet even God couldn't have predicted what came out after four billion years. I'll bet even God was surprised by all that. And then God parades the whole crawling, squirming, leaping, diving zoo past the first man, past Adam, to see what the man will call them. And whatever the man calls them, that was its name. Aardvark, orangutan, platypus, rhinoceros, which of course is Greek for horned nose. You notice the etymological connection between rhinovirus and rhinoceros, right? Hippopotamus, which means river horse beast, which needs no translation. This is Adam's first job on earth. The oldest profession is not what you thought it was. Remember, in this creation story, there's no sex for hire or otherwise because the woman isn't invented yet. No sex, for the humans at least. So the oldest profession isn't what you think it is. The oldest profession is taxonomist. Adam gets to name his new friends. And we've been at it ever since, Adam and his descendants, we've been at it ever since trying to name the sprawling miscellany and to give meaning and richness to their lives. We've named two million animal species so far, two million, and put them in orderly strata, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. 2 million, but we've only just gotten started. It looks like that's about 10% of the total that lives on Earth. There are 20 million species, most of whom we don't even know about yet. We haven't found it yet. Half of them are insects, but still. 20 million animals, 20 million names, long Latin names like Canis lupus familiaris, because a quotidian word like dog doesn't suffice to describe so wonderful a companion. And so we'd better stay with this task of taxonomy because some of the animals will be disappearing before we've even had a chance to name them or to see them. Global warming and human sprawl into wild habitat are imperiling our animal friends. Renowned Harvard entomologist E.O. Wilson guesses that by the end of this century, 80 years off, by the end of this century, half the animal species that exist will go extinct. A lot of our children and grandchildren will still be here in 2100. I hope it's not a lonely place. And so all of this has had scientists coming up with a new word to describe the age in which we live in. They call this the Anthropocene Epoch, Anthropos, Greek for human being the Anthropocene. There was the Pleistocene, which was the Ice Age, the Holocene, which came after. Now some scientists are saying we're entering a new epoch called the Anthropocene because of the impact our lives are having on other lives. Last year, maybe you've heard this story, last year a a frog named Tuffy, aptly named like in Rough and Tough, a frog named Tuffy became a minor celebrity At his enclosure at the uh, botanical garden in Atlanta and he became a minor celebrity there because the visitors to the garden and the staff members there knew that he was the last of his kind on earth he is a rab's fringe-limbed tree frog and he was collected from Panama 12 years ago he's at least 12 years old maybe older and Tuffy uh, fathered had poles with his girlfriend but none of them survived and then his girlfriend died and that left Tuffy all alone on earth as a rab's fringe-limbed tree frog now I'm not going to miss the rab's fringe-limbed tree frog I've never seen one and I didn't know it existed till yesterday at three o'clock this happens all the time right Species evolve to the point where they become a discrete species and Hang around for 20 million years or whatever and then they vanish Never to return What is it Elton John sings, you know the circle of life? The circle of life and the circle of death it happens all the time might not even be our fault This happens all the time in nature. We take our turns to exist Still, creation seems a little diminished without Tuffy and his kind. So this week, the United States resigned from a club that really wasn't all that special. Anybody could get into this club, even North Korea. And the United States joined a a more restrictive club, a highly selective club, with only two other members, Syria and Nicaragua. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm choosing to celebrate it because the virtues of the conservative movement are small government and the diminishment of the nanny state. So what I'm choosing to see for my life is that this is forcing me to grow up and to take responsibility for my own decisions, for how I decide what to take out of and what to give back to this stunning, spinning blue sphere. And so you know what I can do? I can turn the thermostat four degrees up in the summer and four degrees down in the winter. I can walk or bike or bus instead of driving. And when I do drive, I can drive a Volt instead of an Escalade. I can diminish my budget for stuff by 20%, you know, clothes and phones and computers and books, heaven forfend. I can reduce that budget by 20% and save it for retirement or give it to my kids when I die. I can be less consumer and more conservator. And I can become a better steward of the lush garden and swarming zoo God has given me responsibility for. Then I'll quit by finishing the Bible story. Adam's naming of the animals is not the end of the story, right? In fact, this creation story is not about animals. It's about people. 20 million friends. 20 million different kinds of friends and Adam is still lonely. He doesn't have a partner fit for him. So God goes back to the drawing board a third time and God comes up with God's magnum opus, the queen of creation. And God brings her to the man and then he's no longer lonely. They are partners fit for each other. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves unto his wife and the two become one flesh. This story is not about animals. It's about friendship. It's about relationship. It's about marriage. It's about the God who will not quit creating until the creature has companions to walk the way with him. 20 million different kinds of friends and an equal partner too. And so this is the time of the year when the world is exploding with blossom and birdsong and where the drab palette of winter is giving way to the bolder colors of summertime. And this is the time of the year when we find out, when we remember, when we rediscover that Eden was neither myth nor fantasy but home, really home, extravagant unmerited, lavish home. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.